Haman's Rage Against Mordecai. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. Mordecai honored. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse he entrusted to the one the king most noble, to the one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Debbie. Well, if you have not been with us through this uh, study of Esther, we, when we last left Esther herself, a crescendo of events in and around her life had coalesced, had kind of come together into a defining moment for her. Things that at first appeared to be nothing more than coincidences were now revealed by her uncle Mordecai to be glimpses of the providence of God working in her life. And what Esther will do next is something that we're going to look at next week. But this morning, we're going to turn our attention in the midst of this story to look at someone else, to look at the villain, to look at the bad guy, to look at the one who gets booed by the crowd every time his name is mentioned when this story is read out loud, Haman. 
We're going to look at Haman this morning and pause in terms of what happens next for Esther because there are important lessons for us about ourselves and about the gospel and, yes, the person of Haman. We've seen throughout this story how providence works, how things are oftentimes in our lives more than just a coincidence, and how things can come together in a way that divine providence and human opportunity, those defining moments of our life, can come. And we've seen that for Esther, and we're waiting to see what she will do next. But this is not just a truth for Esther or for Mordecai or Xerxes. It's also a truth for Haman. We're going to give a little sympathy to the devil this morning. Because Haman, in this story, in many ways, I think, typifies the biggest obstacle that we face in living responsively, in living to res in response to God's providence, in engaging those defining moments in our lives. And in a word, that biggest obstacle that we face is pride. Pride. What is pride? For our purposes this morning, I want you to think of pride as simply a concentration on oneself. A concentration on the self. C.S. Lewis, in fact, expanded this definition. He said, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. In other words, pride means constant ego calculation. Constant ego calculation. Am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting the appreciation due to me? Did that person treat me right? How do I look? How will this make me look? How do I compare to him or her? We're going to look at pride this morning because contrary to popular belief, pride is not just the problem of arrogant or cocky people. And oftentimes when we speak of pride, we think, well, that's only a problem for people who are arrogant and cocky. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning, and I think we're going to see through the person of Haman, that pride is the deep-rooted malignancy that affects all human will, that results in the cancer of every human soul. Pride, you see, eats away both the most depressed, self-hating, remorseful person, and pride also eats away the most religious, church-going, moral person as well. Because pride, beloved, is the essence, is the root of all other sin. We need to know what pride is, because honestly, if most of, our most of our problems, if not all of them, our brokenness come from our pride. We're going to see this morning that our anger and disappointment with people comes from our pride. Our despondency and our disappointment with ourselves comes from our pride. Our inability to accept criticism from others comes from our pride. Our bitterness towards the world and towards particular people comes from our pride. So, let's begin. Let's use Haman as a case study on the symptoms and consequences of pride. And I hope that in doing so, we will perhaps, in, in, in engaging this way, we'll see less of the villain in Haman and more of ourselves. And if this is not appealing to any of you this morning, if you're like, man, I picked the wrong Sunday to come to church... Let's not be hesitant, because if we are, that's all the more reason why we need to go here. We can't be afraid this morning to face our pride, all of us, individually and collectively, because unless we confront the disease, we cannot experience the cure. And the other thing I want you to hold on to is, yes, even in the pages of Esther, even in the chapters that we've heard from this morning, we see the whispers of the cure for the disease of pride. So a glimpse into the mind of Haman 
As Debbie began reading this morning, Esther has had her first banquet with the king, which again we'll get to next week. But Haman was invited. And Haman, as we're told, he, he, is, he is just bursting. Because Haman figures he's now become both a favorite of the king and the queen. The king and the queen were discussing a personal matter in his presence. He's flying high because not only is he he the king's confidant, but the queen clearly values his counsel as well. And so you can picture it, Haman goes home with a spring in his step. He leaves the royal palace on a high, not just from the alcohol, but from the intoxication of prestige. You see, as you're going to discover very, very quickly, Haman didn't just crave significance, no. Haman didn't just crave significance. Haman craved being seen as significant. And that's another way of understanding pride. He didn't just crave significance. He craved being seen as significant. And so Haman goes home in high spirits until he sees Mordecai at the city gate. No doubt we can imagine as Haman walked up, again, feeling good. As he saw Mordecai, he believed that surely now Mordecai, who had not bowed down to him, would bow down to him out of fear because Mordecai had read the edict. Mordecai had read the law that had been passed, and Mordecai knew that Haman was behind it. So if for nothing else, Mordecai would at last bow down. But to to Haman's shock, to his disbelief, Mordecai neither rises nor shows fear in his presence. And in a minute, in an instant, Haman's joy, he was bursting, turns into rage. We're told that Haman restrained himself from harming Mordecai and just goes home. He gathers his wife and his friends around him, and he gathers his wife and his friends around him to brag about himself. I encourage you to go back and read the, the passage that Debbie read out loud and notice the number of masculine pronouns. Notice the number of times that he refers to his wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king honored him above all the other nobles and officials. And keep in your mind that he's saying this to his wife and to his friends. He's telling them in detail news they already know. You think his wife doesn't know how many sons they have? How much money they have? And as Haman brags, he adds one new detail. Now at the top honor, he and only he has been invited to the banquet of the queen. It was just... It was just Haman, the king, and Queen Esther. And she had invited him to come back the next day. But in the midst of his boasting and his bragging, Haman lets it out. He finally confesses to his wife and to his friends that this has given him no satisfaction. No satisfaction, no happiness, as long as he sees Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate refusing to bow down to him. We need to stop here for a second. Stop and and realize Nothing had actually changed for Haman. We need to see that. Nothing had actually changed for Haman. To begin with, his power was not actually increased. He didn't get a promotion. He didn't get more money. He didn't get more land. Nothing nothing had actually increased by Esther's invitation. Yet, he felt blessed. He was flying high. And in the same way, when Mordecai refused to bow to him, nothing was really taken away. Nothing was truly taken away. His power was not diminished in any way, and yet Haman was enraged. Why? Because the ego calculation wasn't adding up in his favor. Beloved, pride is the most basic form of idolatry, and Haman's idol was his fragile ego, his pride. Look at it. When Haman's idol, his pride, was fed, he felt good. Life was good. But when Haman's idol, his pride was challenged, he felt bad. 
life was bad. His joy and his anger, as we see it here in chapter 5 and 6, were simply the outward expression of the center of his life, the idol of his heart. And I want to suggest to you this morning as we wrestle with pride, the greatest evidence of the idolatry of pride in our lives is how pride tends to dictate or define our lives and our feelings. If you find yourself happy with your success and your intelligence, your looks, whatever, when the people around you have less intelligence, less success, less look than yours, that's pride. If you find yourself being very, very frustrated and depressed, resentful or despondent when you look around and someone around you, let alone more than one person, is better at you than any of those things, you're struggling with pride. Pride makes these kind of ego calculations go on constantly, often subconsciously. You don't get into anything when you're struggling with pride. You don't get into anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. Pride gets no real pleasure out of having something. Pride gets no real pleasure out of having something and only gets pleasure out of having more of it than someone else. More of anything than someone else. There's no real pleasure on its own unless it's at the expense of someone else. And that's where Haman is. And Haman's wife and his friends, they try to make him feel better with friends like these. You know what, Haman? You know what will cheer you up? Build a 75-foot gallows, go to the king and have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go to the queen and party. Wow. <laughs> When's the last time you had your friends go, you know what your problem is? You just need to kill the guy. Kill him. Kill him. And then go have a party. Have a party. Build a 75-foot gallows. That's the height of an eight-story building. An eight-story building. That's an extraordinary size. Why so huge? Why must it be so high? Well, you, you, you think it through. On the one hand, their advice is, Haman, you want to have Mordecai's body seen for miles in order to frighten the rest of these Jews because when they see a death of one of their prominent leaders, they're going to know that you, and by extension the king, means business. But I'm going to argue that I also think that Again, reflecting back what Haman gave them, his wife and his friends encouraged him to build a 75-foot gallows because of the extraordinary size of the gallows was meant, ironically, to reflect the measure of his ego. The, the size reflected how big his pride was. But the greater irony, if you know this story, is that as Haman loves this idea and has the gallows built that night, he's never able to guess who's actually going to be hanging from it. Haman's family and friends told him to ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hung on it and then go to the queen's dinner happy. I want you to stop and see this because this is another dimension of idolatry, more importantly, pride in our lives. The counsel of Haman's friends and family was to feed his pride, to feed his insecurity, to feed his idolatry, rather than to confront it and dilute its power. We all have friends and we all have family. Friends or family, I'm here to tell you, your real friends and your real family are not those who feed your pride, are not those who feed and encourage your insecurity, who encourage your fear. The people in our lives that truly love us are the ones who have the guts and the courage to confront the idols in our lives. To not hit and run, but to be there and walk with us through our pride and our idolatry so that they're deluded of their power. Because this is the thing, with pride and with idols in general, the only way to deal with pride, the only way to deal with idolatry, the Bible makes it clear there's only one way, you have to starve it. 
You can't minimize it. You can't just deprioritize it. You have to starve your pride. You have to starve your idolatry rather than feed it. If you feed your idolatry, if you feed your pride in any way in order to deal with it, all you will do is give it more power over you. All you will do if you feed your pride, even if it's just a little morsel here and there, is you will just end up feeling emptier than ever. As this is taking place for Haman, we're then taken over to the palace because in the meantime, during the night, the king is unable to sleep. The same night that Haman's having these gallows made, the king can't sleep. And so Xerxes gets up and orders the book of Chronicles to be read to him because God knows that's going to be a snooze fest. This is the book that's recording the, the, the record of events in his reign. No, seriously. And you can picture this. The person's reading, and you, I want you to imagine it. They're reading the book of the, of the Chronicles, and the king's probably going, okay, this is awesome. You know, starting to, to doze off as he's listening, when all of a sudden he starts to read about the record of Mordecai, who had exposed earlier, we encountered this earlier in the story, who had exposed two officers of the king who tried to assassinate him. They conspired together. And the king, all of a sudden, if he was starting to doze off, perks up. He perks up because in reading this, something is missing. There's no mention in the record of the man who had saved his life being publicly recognized or rewarded. You can imagine him all of a sudden not falling asleep, but popping up again. And we're told he asks his attendants, okay, wait a second, what honor and recognition had been given to Mordecai for his faithfulness in saving my life? And they affirm his memory that nothing had been done. This is a terrible and potentially costly oversight on the king's part. After all, you want to reward those subjects who defend you as their king. It's not just good for, pers- for public relations, it's also good for personal safety. So as Xerxes realizes how negligent he's been, he seeks counsel, good counsel, how to best remedy his error. Sidebar. Was it just coincidence that his most trusted advisor, the same man who was having um, Mordecai's gallows being built, Haman, was the only person in the court that early in the morning? Was it coincidence, just a coincidence, that Haman, who happened to be there in order to convince the king of affirming his plan to execute Mordecai, that day was the man who got to plan Mordecai's public recognition and reward? (laughs) You can imagine it, full of pride, Haman enters the king's chamber. The king's asked for him. Of course he has. The king's asked for him, and you can imagine his his bursting with this pride because he's sure he's going to get the king to say that Mordecai has to die in the morning. Because after all, what has he not been able to get the king to say? His pride has assured him the king will do anything he's asked. How How could he lose? And he has no idea what's coming. Because the king, as he starts to talk to Haman, doesn't mention the name of the man he's talking about. And in case you missed this, this is, again, coincidence. Isn't this exactly the same thing when Mordecai was not mentioned by Haman? When Haman went to the king to destroy all of the Jews, he never mentioned them by name. So the king never mentions by name who he has in mind, but he simply asks Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And if there was ever any doubt that Haman is full of pride, it's perfectly clear now, as we're told by the writer, that Haman, in response to this question, thinks, surely he must be the man the king wants to honor. Because after all, who else is there? I mean, who else is there that the king would want to honor besides me? And what's amazing in this moment is Haman, you can imagine it. Well, who else is there? Hmm, what would I like? What would I want? Haman's suggestions are all made with himself in mind. 
you need to see this. You need to understand that Haman doesn't ask for wealth or power because he's got plenty of those already in abundance. Haman wanted the one thing he truly couldn't have. Haman wanted the one thing which, which pride drives each one of us to want. Haman wanted to be treated like a king. Haman wanted to become the center of the universe. You need to understand, when Haman gets his opportunity, everything he says is about becoming the king. For a day, becoming the king. That's why he says, you know what I think you ought to do for the guy you want to honor? I think you ought to wear a robe like you wear. I think you ought to wear one of your robes. And then I think you should be put on a horse that you ride. You know, one that definitely has the mark of the king on it so everyone knows. And I actually think that if you really want to honor that man, then you ought to have one of your noble princes, someone who serves you, serving the man on that horse who's in that robe that you wear, who's on that horse that you ride. And I think not only that, but that prince should ride that man who you wish to honor, treat them like a king. So just so that no one has any misunderstanding, as they go through the city streets, have that prince point up and say, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Can you imagine the rising of Haman's pride in his chest as he thought about this great honor that would come to him? Can you imagine as he's detailing, well, I think you should do this, him picturing himself? Haman had no idea that he was truly about to get what was coming to him. But it wasn't what his pride had expected or had planned. Reality reigns on Haman's parade as the king responds by saying, go at once, excellent idea. Go at once, get that robe, get that horse. Do as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Don't neglect to do anything you've mentioned. Haman could hardly try to get the king to execute Mordecai now when the king wanted to reward him. So Haman is confronted with his own self-created, humbling task of honoring the one man whom he hated, of celebrating one of the leaders of the very people he was trying to destroy. Outside Haman's house was being built a 75-foot gallows on which Mordecai was supposed to hang that morning. But instead, Mordecai's in the king's robe, seated on the king's horse, being led through the streets by the king's chief of staff, his greatest enemy, Haman, who continues to point back and proclaim, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. This is what is done. Can, you, can we imagine how far his stomach sank that morning as Haman's dream day turned into his worst nightmare? We're told after this, this is beyond what Debbie read for us this morning, that Mordecai returned back to the gate. I mean, I'm sure Mordecai enjoyed this, but Mordecai goes back to the gate, probably puts on his sackcloth and ashes because his people are, still have a death sentence. Mordecai goes back to the gate, but Haman rushes home. He's sick to his stomach. His head is covered in grief. Poor Haman. Can we say that this morning? Seriously, can we say poor Haman? I mean, we oftentimes categorize him. We make him some stereotypical kind of villain, and I think that's a huge mistake. This is a flesh and blood person. Can we say poor Haman? He seemed to have it all. Fame, wealth, position, power, honor, but it wasn't enough. Because of his pride, it would never be enough. The book of Proverbs cautions that pride goes before the fall. That's where the sermon title comes from. But Haman's downfall is just beginning. By the end of the day, if you know this story, Haman would lose everything. He would wind up with nothing. He would be disgraced and dishonored. Only hours earlier, Haman was confident that he was set for life. 
when in reality he was just a few hours away from death. What I'm about to say is the crux of this morning's sermon. It is the most, most, most important part and you need to pay attention. Everything that was about to happen to Haman, everything that does happen to Haman, it didn't need to end up that way. It didn't need to end up that way. When we tell this story as a fairy tale and we make Haman some two-dimensional villain, we miss the greater significance in this moment in the story. Haman's forced humility before Mordecai, ironically through his own choice, that forced humility before Mordecai, we need to see it, was an encounter with divine providence. Painful as it was to his ego, there was grace present in that parade through the city. It was a chance for Haman to learn a very valuable lesson. Haman's way out, his divine opportunity to seek another path, rather than to fall into destruction from his pride, is further revealed, in case he missed it, it's further revealed through the words of warning that he gets from his family and his friends. As he tells his wife and his friends what just happened, they make a very wise and dramatically different observation than they had earlier. They could see that Haman's downfall had started before Mordecai in this strange turn of events. Don't miss this. Even these unbelievers, these enemies of the Jews, found themselves with Haman unable to write off all that happened as just a coincidence. There is so much for us to take away from their advice to Haman, some of which we're going to deal with next week. But what we need to see this morning is their counsel to Haman was not merely words of human wisdom. It was a prophetic word from the Lord. Through their words, we come to appreciate something that we've seen again and again in the story of Esther. That Haman's story, just like Esther's or Mordecai's or Xerxes, Haman's story is a testament to what ultimately happens when human decision goes head to head with divine providence. And in Haman's case, it's what happens when human pride goes head-to-head -head with divine providence. By their words to Haman, we once again are reminded that God works out his purposes through our human actions and decisions. That what God seeks to accomplish does not depend upon our willing obedience. Rather, our choice to obey is our opportunity to be a part of God's wonderful work rather than standing on the outside of it looking in. Beloved, another way to put this is this is Haman's defining moment. Do you see that? This is Haman's defining moment, a chance for grace through the presentation of a choice. A man who's been driven perhaps all of his life by pride, by fear, insecurity, and anger. A man who was convinced perhaps all of his life that the world revolved around him and therefore had to work really, really hard to keep himself at the center of everyone's universe has the opportunity the chance, the choice to swallow his pride and repent, to turn back and unravel his vengeful plan. He's still got the power. He's still the second in charge. He still has the position and the influence. Nothing has changed. He still has the ability to use everything that's at his disposal for good, for salvation. But you know this story. Prideful Haman, foolishly, and unnecessarily chooses to go his own way still. And the grand irony of this story that we ought not just to laugh at, but really take seriously, the grand irony is as Haman still chooses to go his own way, in the end, he still finds himself walking in the way of the Lord. 
If I were to boil this down to a bumper sticker, what we can take away from Haman, it's this. Bow now before the Lord or bow later. But you will bow. C.S. Lewis nailed it, didn't he? I mean, C.S. Lewis nailed it when he said that pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride are these endless ego calculations. And we're all coming from different places this morning, but this is where we need to move beyond Haman and see that if Haman is flesh and blood, then, then we need to see maybe a little bit of ourselves in Haman, or maybe a lot. Because if we're here this morning, prospering on the surface, we're here this morning and we can talk to each other and say, you know, I got a good job. I got decent income. I got lots of influence where I am. I've got a great reputation. I'm known for my integrity and my excellence, just like Haman was. But if just like Haman, we sit here this morning and listing off those things, if that's where, like Haman, our identity comes from, then like Haman, we are living the inversion of covenant. We've talked about this again and again. You could draw it yourself, the triangle on the sermon notes. And the triangle at the top will have the Father. God is our Father. One angle will have identity. The other angle will have obedience. Our primary identity comes from knowing that God is our Father and we are his children. When that is our foundational core identity... That means everything we do comes out of, all of our obedience comes out of a place of security. It comes out of a place of dependence. We know who we are. We know whose we are. That it's not about anything we do, anything we have power or control over. That it's because God has declared us to be so. From the beginning of creation, when he brought us into this world, to the moment he redeemed us on the cross. But if we're living like Haman... We're living the inversion of that triangle where our obedience, our lives are all about trying to prove our identity, to maintain our worth. If, if like Haman, our reputation, our achievements, our successes, our control are all for the sake of proving ourselves, if it's all for the sake of maintaining our identity and asserting our worth, then like Haman, if that's what our security is built on, we are, seeding the sows, we are seeding, sowing the seeds of our own destruction. If any part of our life is built on anything other than the Lord, any part of our life is built on anything other than the Lord, if our part, part, any part of our sense of self depends on being favored in the sight of the world, we are sowing the seeds of our own destruction. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. When even just this much of our lives, we say, well, I'm just going to, just this part of my life. Because this part of our life becomes a cancer that overtakes the rest of our life. Because no matter how much fame, no matter how much wealth, no matter how much position, no matter how much honor we have, it will never be enough. Because of our pride, it will never be enough. So, beloved, if you're here this morning and your pride, no matter how small you think it is, if your pride is keeping you even this much away from God, if your pride is leaving, leading you in even the smallest of ways to keep your father at arm's length, if in any part of our lives we're seeking to live independently, relying on our own goodness, relying on our own wealth, our own strength, reputation, wisdom, whatever you want, then we need to learn a lesson from the life of Haman. Because if you stop and think about it, Haman didn't ask for the wrong thing. If you stop and think about it, Haman didn't ask for the wrong thing. He asked for something we all want. We all want someone praiseworthy to praise us. We all want someone that we think the world of to think the world of us. We all want someone of ultimate glory to honor us. That longing for significance has been put in our hearts by our God. 
Our Father created us with that desire, that search for significance. But here's the thing. He created that in us with the understanding that the only place where that need could get filled was through Him. Through Him alone. The problem of sin, the trouble with pride, is that it leads us to look for our significance in all the wrong places. And in all the wrong places, anywhere other than the Lord, all the wrong places become idols. How do we confront our pride this morning? How do we confront something that we don't even like to admit, let alone believe in? How do we recognize its potency, how powerful it is in our lives, that we often think it's this strong and it's a lot stronger? How do we, are we able to realize that this is not a, a malignant tumor, but a cancer that's grown, or a benign tumor, but a malignant tumor that's growing in our lives? We must confront our idols. But again, we live in a world where we don't like to believe in idols. We live in a world where we think idols are these old superstitious things. We live in a world where what I'm about to say is going to rub so many of you the wrong way, and that means it's true. Anything, 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 anything in our lives can be an idol. Anything. Anything that we celebrate, I don't care how good it is, anything that we enjoy, indulge in, apart from the Lord can become an idol. And we don't like to hear that. Your spouse can be an idol in your life right now. Your kids can be an idol in your life right now. Your job can be an idol. Anything that we separate from God that does not ultimately put God at the top, lead us back to God, is, can become an idol in our lives. How do we confront our idols if we don't want to hear that? How do we face them? We expose our idols by analyzing our strongest emotions both good and bad. I want to encourage you today, later this week, to do just that if you're willing to engage your pride. Analyze your strongest emotions, both good and bad. Think about what gets you so upset. Think about what causes you to be angry out of proportion to what's going on. Where you just go off, where you flare up, where you, where the, even if you don't express it, I'm talking deep down inside, where you're just mad. What causes us to be angry out of proportion to what's happening? I guarantee you, if you probe that anger, what you'll discover is what's behind that anger is one of your idols is being attacked. On the flip side, what in our lives makes us feel an unusually strong sense of accomplishment and achievement? I said unusually strong sense of accomplishment and achievement, where you feel so good, where things are so awesome that you ultimately actually, you may not even say it out loud or attempted to think, you know what? It's all me. Or to think, you know what, I can do this without God. Or to say, you know what, I could live without God if I had this. If I had this. And this is the harder one because we live in a society that's like, well, if it feels good, do it. How can it be wrong if it feels so good? Because if it feels good enough to make us say that God's not as good as this is anymore, we got a problem. And I'm telling you, if you really probe those things where you feel that sense of independence, I can do it alone. I am awesome. Behind that thing that feels, that experience, that thing that feels so incredibly good that there's no way it could be wrong, guess why it feels so good? It feels so good that it tempts you to actually believe you could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Lord or don't need him at all. It feels so good because one of your idols is being stroked. The author and pastor Tim Keller actually expresses this truth about Haman even better than I have. I love what he says here. He says, similar to me, Haman's problem was not that he asked for the wrong thing. Haman's problem was he asked the wrong king. Beloved, when the world revolves around God, when 
our Father is the center of our universe, when you know that God the Father delights in you through Christ, you are actually freed to think of yourself less. You are liberated from the bondage of ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on yourself. Rather than carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, you have the freedom, we have the freedom to fill the earth as God called us to, to cultivate the fruitfulness of each and every moment as an opportunity rather than as a burden. We no longer feel like we're engaging in the constant ego calculations. We live and achieve not out of insecurity and fear, but out of faith and dependence. And you're only going to get there. We're only going to get there by looking at the cross. We're only going to get there by looking at the cross. We're not going to get there by building our own gallows. We're only going to get there by looking at the cross. We're never going to get there by saying, you know what? I'm going to be a more humble person. The minute you say that, you've just sealed your fate. I'm going to become a more humble person. Do you notice how humble I am? <laughs> Working really hard on that. Working real hard to be humble right now. We'll never get there by saying, I'm going to be a more humble person. The only way that we can truly become humble is by looking away from ourselves and looking to the one who delights in us. Looking to the one who delights in us. And if we look up to the Father, if we look to Jesus on the cross, we are able to enjoy the blessings of life in themselves and of themselves. When's the last time you just enjoyed life for itself? Rather than everything that comes into your life as a way of calculating your worth, not only in your own eyes, but in the eyes of other people. It's exhausting. It's killing us. Our affirmation does not come from the blessings. And again, here's another false gospel in the church. Many of us have been raised to believe or somehow bought along the way that if I'm being blessed by God, I'm doing good. And if I'm not being blessed by God, that means I'm not doing enough and i got to prove myself to this God. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Our affirmation does not come from the blessings. The blessings, when they come, are a reminder that we've already been affirmed. That we've already been declared worthy, beloved, and significant apart from our success or our failures. And when that sinks in, when you truly get it, you know what happens? When you truly understand that your identity is not dependent upon other people, you find yourself strong enough to accept criticism. It doesn't make you angry or despondent. Because your value is not based on what people think of you. It's not even based on what you think of you. It's based upon what Christ thinks of you and what Christ has done for you. When you look and understand the great cost that Jesus has willingly paid for your pride and mine, for our sins, you're able to get past your bitterness toward other people who have wronged you because the gospel humbles you. How can you be bitter? How can you hold on to that resentment and that anger when God has not held on to it in terms of you? How can we do that? Beloved, pride does indeed go before the fall, but hear this one last time. It doesn't have to be that way. Pride doesn't have to be the last word in our story. Jesus Christ goes to the gallows framed by our pride, built for our destruction. He goes to the cross so that he will kill our pride, so that we might die to our idols, so that we who were once destined for the grave can be reborn, secure for life, in our Father's kingdom. 
Before us yet again today is an offer of adoption by the Holy Spirit. Before us yet again is an offer to put on the royal robes, to take bread and drink from the cup, to be carried by Christ through the town and become part of the family, one of God's children. And Jesus promises that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So let us be humble. Not by our own effort, but by looking to Jesus, looking to the cross. Let us put aside our ego calculations and instead let God define our worth. Let us say no to our pride. And let's be grateful. Let's celebrate as Jesus carries us on his shoulders and declares to all those who have not heard, heard, to all those who would presume to say something else out of their pride to us, let us be grateful and celebrate as Jesus carries us on his shoulders and declares, this is what is done for the one the king delights to honor. Those are the words. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus says to us. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, let's have a little sympathy for Haman. Because our sympathy for Haman it's just the smallest of measures of God's great sympathy for us. Amen? Amen. Amen.